that. <clears throat> this morning we continue in the book of Mark. Uh, we look at chapter 12. As you know, we've been looking through Mark for a number of time, a number of months. Um, and we get to a, a topic that I believe has been uh, on people's minds for a very long time. We all have questions about life after death. We have questions like, what's it going to be like? What will we do when we get there? What will our relations with one another be like? Nearly every culture that has ever existed has possessed some type of belief in life after death. It's built, I believe, into the heart of every person. There's a quote that's been credited to a 19th century geologist, mineralogist. Uh, he, he was a professor at Yale University. His name was Dw James Dwight Dane, and he summed up this hope of life after death with this statement. I do not believe God would create man and then desert him at the grave. It beats in every human chest this idea of life after death. In fact, if you do a little research, which I was, uh, did this week and kind of ran down this little rabbit trail, uh, almost landed me in a rabbit hole, um, it's interesting how for centuries people have been thinking about life after death. In fact, the pharaohs of Egypt, they, they found where they, this thing had been sealed for over 5,000 years, they found a solar boat which had been built so that he could sail through the heavens in his next life. Ancient Greece, Greeks were often buried with a coin in their mouth to pay the fare to cross over to the next side. Native Americans were buried with their bows, arrows, and ponies so they would be ready to hunt when they arrived at the happy hunting ground. Ancient Vikings believed in a place called Valhalla where they believed they would fight all day. The dead would be raised and wounded and healed every evening. They would feast and drink the night away and wake up again the next morning, and that was their eternity. Even some who have refused Jesus as their Savior still have within them this idea of eternity, this thought, this, these questions about what's after this life. The ancient Jews, which we'll look at today, was no different. There was no exception to them. They, too believed in life after death. Their Talmud, which is their oral traditions and their teachings, were filled with references about life after death. And that's the issue we face this morning with Jesus and the Sadducees. Now the Pharisees and the Herodians last week came to Jesus and they came with different kinds of questions and they failed to trap Jesus with their questions. And so today we see this encounter of the Sadducees trying to trap Jesus with questions. But Jesus we have to remember, had the greatest knowledge of Scripture of anyone who ever lived. He was the greatest rabbi, the greatest interpreter of the Old Testament, and yet the Sadducees wanted to question him. The title of the message this morning is God of the Living, and before we get into the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity you give us to come to a place in our week where we can pause, where we can make this day your day, the Lord's day, where we focus our attention and our energies and our, 
our, our desires and our thankfulness and our gratitude on you. Thank you for also a time and a place where we can come and celebrate that and worship together with other believers. And now, God, we come and we thank you for a time in the service even to pause, to open your word, and to hear from you. And so, God, we pray by your spirit that you would teach us in all wisdom and all truth, that you know the needs of every heart and mind here, and that we would seek you to meet those needs. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you or beside you, that they would hear and respond to the Lord this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 12. We're going to start at verse 18 and go down through verse 27. Mark 12, 18. Some Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child... His brother should marry the wife and raise the children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children, and the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. And Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Three simple things I want to look at this morning is first the challengers, the challenge, and the choice. First the challengers. Verse 18 says, Some Sadducees who you say who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and began questioning him. Jesus is ministering in the temples. Matthew lets us know in Matthew 22 that. Uh, this is the same day that he had just faced the Pharisees and the Herodians that the Sadducees now come to him. And they're wanting to do the exact same thing. They want to trip Jesus up. They want to embarrass him in front of the people. Now, this is the only time in Mark's gospel that you see the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees are they are not a large Jewish party. They were aristocratic. They were wealthy. And being wealthy and part of the aristocratic party, they wished to retain their comforts and their privileges. And the Sadducees come and attack Jesus. Uh, many uh, scholars say that they were mean-spirited, they felt superior, uh, they were self-righteous, and they looked at Jesus and kind of said, who do you think you are? Do you not know who we are? We can trap you and embarrass you pretty easy. Obviously, the Sadducees were skeptics. They came from families that had high standings. They were wealthy and worldly, but there were few of them compared to the number of Pharisees. Historians call them ill-mannered and conceited. Josephus, the great historian, wrote this. The Sadducees are 
even among themselves, rather boorish in their behavior and in their intercourse with their peers, are rude as aliens. Great group of guys, huh? Evidently, they didn't like many people very much, including themselves. And their distinction, their distinction among the other religious rulers is that they rejected the supernatural apart from God himself. The Sadducees were this minority sect of Jews, but they had great influence. The Sadducees controlled the buying and selling that went on in the temple. Now, remember what Jesus did in the temple. He overturned the money changers, which were directly related to the Sadducees. The Sadducees also controlled the priesthood, meaning that all high priests and chief priests were Sadducees. The Sadducees also formed the majority of the Sanhedrin, which was the supreme court for the Jewish rulers. So they may not have had been great in numbers, but they were great in influence. And they were rude, they were insensitive, and they were very harsh in their judgments of people. They disliked the common people, but the feelings were mutual. The common people didn't like them much either. They came had a hatred towards Jesus, and came to attack him to embarrass him. Now, it's also been described of the Sadducees that they were probably the most literalist of the religious rulers, meaning that they took literally what they read, but only out of the Pentateuch. Now, the Pentateuch, penta meaning five, tuch meaning law, is the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Sadducees hung on every word of the first five books of the New Testament, I mean the Old Testament. They believe that what happens with God can only happen from the Old Testament Pentateuch. The doctrine that caused them and Jesus and people the most trouble were things of supernatural. They believed in the existence of God, but they rejected everything else that was supernatural in state. In other words, they believed this much, but rejected this much. They didn't have the New Testament yet. Nothing supernatural, meaning they didn't believe in demons, angels, or the devil. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in heaven or hell. They didn't believe in a future judgment. They didn't believe in life after death. And particularly, they did not believe in resurrection from the dead. If they couldn't find it in the Pentateuch, then they rejected it. And that's important. So how did that make them live their lives? They lived it for the moment, for the day. In fact, it can be summarized that they lived out the eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. It was all about the here and now. And so they come to Jesus asking him about the resurrection. And think about, there's some people that kind of live that way today. That there's not a reality in their mind that there is an afterlife or a resurrection or a judgment. And so they live for today. But I need to tell you, there is a God... There will be a resurrection, and there will be a judgment. 
there is a heaven and there is a hell. And our only hope of heaven is Jesus. John 14, 6, Jesus saying of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Speaking of Jesus in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven or on earth that has been given among men which we can be saved. The only hope for a lost soul is the hope of Jesus and the gospel. So these Sadducees come to Jesus, the resurrection as we know him, and ask him about the validity of the resurrection in order to trip him up, trick him or challenge him. So what was the challenge? Verse 23 says this, In the resurrection... When they rise again, which wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Now in verse, verse 19, you'll see that they approach Jesus as teacher, or some translations may say rabbi. Now obviously, they're not calling him their teacher. It's probably a little bit sarcastic and probably has a little bit of a smirk on their face as they say him teacher. Now get this scene. You've got the, the wealthy, aristocratic, Sadducees and Jesus. And we already know what the mentality is around Jesus from John chapter 1, verse 47, is when they say, can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus was from Nazareth. And so you see this discretion of people. Now notice who they appeal to first in their argument. They say to Jesus, Moses tells us this. Now why would they choose Moses? Because Moses is the main character of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so they come to Jesus based on Moses. The Sadducees also knew of the Jewish connection to Moses. Now, I just want to back up and say this. Can't you just see the patience and grace of Jesus Jesus was there when Moses was born. Of course they kn- he knows Moses. But Jesus allows them to ask them questions. And what it made me very comfortable to say, when we question God, even argue maybe with God, we, he will always confirm truth and offer an invitation for us to change. This is shown in the grace and patience of Jesus. Now, these guys had constructed this puzzle, this riddle, to try to trap Jesus. And they ask him about one wife and seven brothers. Now, most scholars and commentators agree that they didn't really actually know this woman or these brothers, that it was a tale they were making up in order to trap Jesus. But it was based on a Deuteronomy law that we're going to read right now. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. The law made provision for families so that the inheritance of the family could stay intact. And if a man died 
with no living children, his next of kin would marry his widow and raise up the child in the name of the deceased. Now, how many of you have ever been on Ancestry.com? Well, my sister and my aunt went on Ancestry.com and went on my dad's side and went way back 100 years. It's pretty interesting. Well, I'm pretty convinced that these Sadducees didn't have Ancestry.com. But if they would have, they would have found something really interesting in Jesus' genealogy. Because it was this law that brought the union about between Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38. This is noteworthy because it kept the line of Jesus coming from the, the tribe of Judah. In fact, in Ruth chapter 4, Boaz and Ruth are coming together because of this law. So this law is important to the Jewish community. And the Sadducees knew it. And they bring it to Jesus. The law guaranteed that a family's inheritance would stay in the family. And it would mean that the Jews and Gentiles would not mix in marriage. The Sadducees bring this to Jesus, that a man died without leaving an heir, and he had seven brothers, and when he died, the next brother took the life, the next brother, the next brother, all the way through. Each of the brothers married this woman, no children, and then finally the woman herself died. Now let me just say, poor woman. <laughs> I mean, think about what she had to go through. And their question to Jesus is, whose wife will she be at the resurrection? Now, remember, the Jewish community believed in the resurrection. They believed in eternity. They believed that there would be life after death. And so the Sadducees, of course, did not. And they think, well, if you lower class people believe that, then tell us, Jesus, whose wife will she be? A riddle, a question to stump him. And here's what's important. If Jesus is stumped, if Jesus is proven wrong at one point, then you have to throw it all away. And so every move, every word he says has to be perfect. And they are. These Sadducees are asking Jesus this question about the resurrection and marriage because they think it's an unsolvable problem. They think that Jesus, like the Pharisees and the Herodians, that Jesus only has A or B. She's either the first brother or she's all the brothers. But Jesus always has a plan C. What if, Jesus says, she's not the wife of any of them? Look at his answer in verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? Now Jesus begins by telling these men in verse 24 that they are mistaken or in error in other translations. And the Greek word for error here is the word palon, which is where we get the word planet. And so what Jesus is actually saying is, Your thinking is from a different planet. Now, how many of you have people in your life, when they start talking, you think, man, they are from a different planet? <laughs> That's what Jesus is looking at, these Sadducees going, do you not know the scriptures? You must be from a different planet. You have no idea what you're talking about, and you're the religious rulers. 
So Jesus went on to say, you have two things wrong. You have two things that are mistaken. The first is this. You're ignorant of God's word. And two, you're ignorant of God's power. Jesus asserts that what the Sadducees claimed to know best, Scripture and power, in fact, they knew least. Two things. The first was, they're ignorant to God's word. Verse 24 says, do you, you do not understand the Scriptures. Now think about how the Sadducees would have heard this from Jesus of Nazareth. I, I don't know the Scriptures. You don't know the Scriptures, Jesus says. They had read the scriptures, the Old Testament. And throughout the Old Testament, there are references to the resurrection. I won't read all these, but, but write these down. Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. Isaiah 26, 19. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. All make references. The Old Testament is full of references to the res resurrection. It's a fact that the resurrection exists because it's part of God's big story. They went around saying the Bible says this and the Bible says that, but they were wrong about what they were saying. They were mistaken. They were in error, Jesus says. And I think the same thing can be true today. How many of you ever heard any of these following phrases? The Lord only helps those who help themselves. Or how many of you have thought that, that God says, in order for me to maintain and receive God's love, I've got to be good and not sin for him to like me? How many of you remember this one? Maybe from your grandmothers growing up. Cleanliness is next to godliness. <laughs> or the golden rule. Do unto others before they do it to you. That's... <laughs> That's not exactly how it goes, but that's kind of a... Most people believe these things to be true. In fact, they have a thinking that these things are in the Bible. And they're misinterpretations. In fact, they're from a different planet. They're not found in the Word of God. And here's the truth I've learned about myself, and I know that others have too is that reading the Bible provides the power and clarity to destroy a lot of false beliefs. And let me just remind us, 2 Timothy 2, when Paul tells Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of God. Now this is especially true for elders, it's especially true for deacons. It's especially true for pastors, for people on staff, ministry leaders. But that's also true for every one of us, to accurately handle the Word of God. In our day and age, think about this. In our day and age, in a world in which we find ourselves, the culture that is ours to navigate, the many different beliefs, the opinions, the confusions, the people seeking truth, the people craving love, the people trying to understand their identity. We need to know what the Bible says. Not just a few of us. All of us. Jesus responds with a biblical answer. How did he do that? Because he knew the scripture. 
Jesus always confronted challenges, opinions, ridicule, temptations, and the same with the same common yet powerful weapon. Scripture calls it the sword of the Spirit, God's Word. And here's the truth. If we're going to live and respond with a strong biblical answer, we too must know and understand the Scripture. Now, I know this is probably an elementary illustration, and some of you are going to go, Matthew, that's all I'm going to remember this morning, but that's okay. How many of you like to drink tea? How many of you like coffee, just as a side note? There you are. Yeah, that's good. What if I just take this tea bag and just kind of just kind of dip it in? Think it tastes like tea? It may even make the water taste worse. The tea gets stronger and more potent and more flavorful when you let the tea bag stay in the hot water. And here's what happens. The hot water infuses itself into the tea bag, creating this flavor. And then the tea bag releases that flavor into the water, making it better to drink. And so it is with God's word. We need to, as one person said, read it in, pray it through, and live it out. Read it in, pray it through, and live it out. Many churches, many believers are coming to God's word with just a little dip. And I'm convinced that part of our responsibility as a church and as a people of God is to sit and let the Word of God get inside of us in a way that motivates us and changes us. And then we can live it out with much more flavor. Many of you grew up in a church that said this every Sunday, God's Word is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. And that's true. And think about it. If it's not God's Word, then whose is it? I am certainly nowhere smart enough to understand how to navigate this life on my own. And neither are you. There has to be a higher and more substantial life-giving and eternal per perspective of authority in our lives, and it is the Bible, God's Word. How arrogant it is for us to not read and study God's Word. So Jesus says to them, do you not know the scriptures? And then the second thing is, do you not know the power of God? The Bible has a lot to say about God's power. It was displayed in creation, Romans 1.20. It's demonstrated in the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 6. It changes us, Philippians 3.21. It results in the ability to patiently endure everything with joy. That is a power of God. And do you know, as a believer... You have the power of God. It's the same power that raised Jesus to life. But the question is, do we live that way? And I just want to take a minute and remind us all that we have and we serve an all-powerful God. 
Now Jesus refers in verses 25 to 27 about some natural relationships in heaven. Now let me just say, I love my wife. I love being married to my wife. And there's no doubt that my wife loves being married to me. Was there a question about that? (laughs) My point is God's plan and institution of marriage is great. Think about it. Marriage was designed for companionship. Genesis 2, verses 18. Marriage was designed for procreation. For people to inhabit the earth. Genesis 1, 22. Paul says marriage is also a fulfillment of needs being met in 1 Corinthians 7, 2. When we go to heaven, Jesus says we will be like angels, only in the sense that we will be like spiritual beings, that we will no longer need the physical necessities of this world. In heaven, like the angels, we will be deathless. We will be sinless. We will be glorified. We will be eternal. But unlike the angels, there's something else. 1 John 5 uh, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like Jesus. Because we'll see him just as he is. There's no need for exclusive physical relationships like there are here, because heaven, in heaven, everyone will be perfectly and intimately connected in relationship. Now, it does not mean that a husband and wife will no longer know each other in heaven. In fact, I believe this also doesn't mean that a husband and wife could not have a close relationship in heaven. What it does mean is that they won't be married in heaven, Jesus says. Because when God established marriage, he did it for certain needs here. The solution of Adam being lonely and without a companion and a helper was why he created Eve in marriage. In heaven, we have all the companions we need, Revelation 7, 9. All our needs will be met. There will be no more loneliness. And secondly, God created marriage as a means of procreation to inhabit the earth. Heaven will not be populated by procreation. Heaven is populated by those who believe in Jesus Christ. So there's no longer a purpose for marriage in heaven because of no longer procreation or no loneliness. Now, in verses 26 and 27, Jesus refers to the fact, the reality of the resurrection. And he points them back to Moses and the burning bush in Exodus 3 and 4. You remember the story? Moses goes to the bush. It's burning, but it's not being consumed. He takes off his sandals because it's holy ground. He tells him to go and be his spokesman. And what does Moses say? Who shall I say is sending me? And God says, you tell them I am. Four times in the chapters 3 and 4 of Exodus, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Four times. Notice he doesn't say, I was. He says, I am, meaning that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. In fact, they're more alive in heaven than they were when they were on earth. Jesus reminds the Sadducees, is not... The God, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And notice that he never questions the fact of the resurrection. He doesn't say, if they rise, it says, 
when they rise again. Jesus himself became our promise of the resurrection. That's why salvation is referred to new birth in John 3. Everlasting life in John 3.16. Abundant life in John 10.10. Every one of us here will experience resurrection. And as Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 says, some will rise into the relationship being with Jesus and some will rise to judgment. So here's a very important thing you need to know this morning. All of us. The place of our resurrection will be determined by what we do with Jesus. 1 John 5, 12. He who has the Son, capital S, Jesus, has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Jesus is the dividing line between life and death, between heaven and hell. Now, around the afterlife, around heaven, there is a great mystery that we don't know about. 1 Corinthians talks about it. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. We can't know for sure. Heaven will remain a mystery until we arrive there. Now, Randy Alcorn, in his book, took that verse of no eye has heard and no, eye, uh, no ear has heard. No, no. What do your eyes do? <laughs> your eyes see. No eye has seen and no ear has heard. And he took that verse and he said, but yeah, but there are some references in Scripture that can give us some insight about maybe what's going on there. This is not a uh, been there, done that book. It's just a, a, a pulling some things out of Scripture. If you ever want to read it, it's a good little book. No, not little, but book. Because I think there are some things we can know for sure about heaven. The first is this. You will still be known as you are in heaven. You'll retain your individuality there. Now, I am not sure what's going to give that away. I don't know if it's my looks, if it's my voice. I don't know if it's my memories. But I do know that I will be distinguishable in heaven. And the way I know that is because Moses and Elijah were distinguishable on the Mount of Transfiguration. We will simply be a better perfected and more glorified me. Now, I'm not sure what age that will be or what like I, I look like then or what my glorified body will be, but I know heaven will be better and people will notice me. Which leads me to know with certainty that we will know our loved ones in heaven. Here's another thing. Love will be perfected there. Relationships will be perfect there. No selfishness or jealousy. No sin. But relationships will be purely motivated and experienced out of love. Fully known. Fully loved. Another thing about heaven. There will be no more death in heaven. Revelation 21.4 And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. For there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the first things have passed away. Another thing, most, if not all of us, are waiting for, we will receive a new body in heaven. <laughs> most of us say, praise the Lord. No more aches and pains or medicine or struggles. This perishable, Corinthians says, will put on an imperishable. 
And finally, the most notable truth about heaven. We will see and be with Jesus forever. This is the ultimate true and ultimate reward of heaven. Seeing other people, it's going to be great. Them recognizing me, awesome. A new body, wonderful. Never being separated from anybody else because of death again, incredible. But being with Jesus, the one who died for me, so I could even be there in the first place, is what heaven's all about. All the other things of heaven, but that's not what makes it heaven. The unhindered presence of Jesus makes it heaven. And I'm reminded of this. Remember when Jesus is with the thief on the cross and he says, remember me when you come into paradise. And what does Jesus say? Man, you're going to get a new, brand new body. People are going to know you there. You're going to see your family. There's not going to be any more pain. There's not going to be any more death. He doesn't say any of that. What does he say? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Because that's what heaven is all about. Being with Jesus forever. Jesus ends this argument with the Sadducees by saying this, you are greatly mistaken. You are really from another planet. But the tone of the Greek and the translation of the Greek in this passage means this, you are leading yourself away. They realized their trap didn't work if they would have only embraced the resurrection capital R, the way, the truth, and the life that was right in front of them, they would have life eternal. And that's my prayer for each of us this morning. I want to close with a few questions. What is your thought and attitude about your own resurrection? There's a quote that I've shared many times that says this, I've never had a peace about living until I've had a peace about dying. Where's your peace? Where is it resting this morning? There will be a resurrection for you. There is a God and there is a Savior who wants to embrace you at that resurrection. Again, your resurrection and mine is directly related to what we do with Jesus today. How are you resting in God's word and God's power the Sadducees had two main problems. They didn't know the scriptures and they didn't recognize the power of God. Could that be said of me and you? I want to challenge each of us to read it in, pray it through, and live it out so we can experience the power of God. The last one is this. If you experience the grace and truth of Jesus, I, I really do love that Jesus invites us to ask questions of things we don't understand but it's an invitation for us to embrace the truth. Is there anything, anything that's holding you back from embracing the truth of Jesus? Let me pray for us. God, I pray this morning that as we opened your word, that your spirit did what only he could do, that he would teach us in all wisdom and truth. He would teach us about ourselves. He would teach us about you and your desire for our lives. Help us, we pray, with the application of your word this morning. 
and we'll trust you with the results. In Jesus' name, amen.